My special guest today is an award-winning actor whose phenomenal performance in the bill has earned him his rightful place as a TV icon. There's a lot to celebrate today because I'm walking the beat down memory lane with a true legend. Mark Wingett, welcome to the Bill Podcast. More like leg end than <laughs> Thank you so much, Mark. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how excited I am to be talking to you. Ah, pleasure, all of us. Pleasure. Before we go back in time, I'd love to ask you about your recent work on a new play by John Hales called The Response. Yeah, that was, uh, that was very, very interesting. Basically, the premise of the play is set in 2006, just after, well a few months after the bombing, uh, the 7-7 bombings of the Tube. And it's four white extremists who have kidnapped some Muslims and are going to behead them on tape. They are going to perform an atrocity. And it's a discourse on the nature of belief, the nature of bigotry and racism and religiosity. It's a very, very sort of hard-hitting punchy play with these four lunatics. Its ultimate message is one of peace and uh, I think it's quite an important play. And what I did is um, I did a thing called R&D, Research and Development. So John John had written the play and we spent two days on it, working on it. He went away. He rewrote parts that we'd kind of suggested because of our input. We came back, we worked another two days on it and then we performed it three times did a thing called a rehearsed reading. And the response to the response was um, quite extraordinary, mm. you know. Mm. Uh, where it goes from now, I'm not quite sure. There's plans, of course, there's plans to, to take it on tour, yeah, to tour it, or John, who is a screenplay writer, what he would ultimately like to do is make a TV series of it. And uh, there's eight characters in it, each episode concentrating on one of the characters. Funnily enough, I play, it's it's, it's a great, I mean, it's set during the England-Sweden match. I think it's the Euros, yeah, in the Euros, uh, down in the basement of this derelict pub. So there's a correlation there between sort of fanaticism and, um, and, you know, what's fanaticism, what's support, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. It's, uh, yeah, it's a very interesting play. It's a very interesting play which looks at lots of different aspects. Uncompromising and it's hard to watch. Mm. But that's not a bad thing in the theatre, you know, not that it's not entertaining. It's just very uncomfortable. And what happens is we did a blind poll. The first question was, I want everyone to shut their eyes so nobody can see who's voting. Did anyone agree with anything these extremists said? And uh, about 40% of people did. Wow. Which is kind of an extraordinary kind of uh, sort of reaction. Mm. But of course, I mean, there's, there's two sides to every story. And these people are just taking it sort of 12 steps too far. What I admire about you is the fact that on one hand you could be making a blockbuster movie and on the other you're supporting a brand new play with a rehearsed reading. You still seem to love your profession. Oh, I love it. I mean, that that was great. I mean, I, I injured myself last year. This was the first job that I had in, what, since since June because I was unable to work. So it was just great to ease myself back in again, you know. And, and theatre has always been the bread and butter of the profession. It's where you kind of learn your craft and it's where you hone it as well. And it's great fun. 
worked with a good little cast, a great cast, good actors. It's just, it's, it's a joy, you know, it's a joy. And that's what I signed up for. I didn't sign up to be famous. I, I signed up because I, the work appealed to me and the, the whole thing of being an actor and, uh, and performing. So the fame can basically go and look after itself, really. I'm not really interested in that. I like the work. I like, like any good actor, just like the work, you know. And there's some marvellous younger actors in the response. Do, do you feel for the current generation, because there's so many actors now, is, is it harder for them? Do they have to try and make their own opportunities? And what's the sort of recurring advice that you get asked from younger actors? OK, so, I mean, anyone can call themselves an actor now. Mm. First off. On the other hand, the actors that are not just actors... I've got, I want to be an actor. I get, I get asked a lot of times, you know, I want to be an actor, what do you have to do? And I say, well, do you, do you want to act like you've got to breathe? Well, no. I say, well, don't even bother. Yeah. Don't even bother, <laughs> you know, because it's not so much about acting, it's about being famous. Mm. But the actors, the young actors these days are so much more sorted than we ever were when I was their age, you know. They have a real business acumen to them and a real professionality. I mean, I... If I if I was starting out my career now with my sort of past behaviour, I'd probably <laughs> I'd probably last about six months. You know, <laughs> my advice is to stick at it. You know, it's just stick at it, just do it. The great thing about today is it's, it's it's more democratic. I mean, anyone can make a film. You can edit a film in your kitchen. You yeah, know? yeah. So anyone, there's there's a lot more outlets, the platforms out there. I mean, the, the classic ones, Netflix, which is which is doing all the good work. You know, they've, they've got some extraordinary... They've got some turkeys on there, but they've got some <laughs> extraordinary series on there as well, you know. I love, that, I love that interruptive technology. I love that terms, and they've interrupted the business. And, and the big firms, the terrestrial channels, have been very, very slow to catch up. If you think that the, the BBC invented the iPlayer and streaming, they should be miles ahead, but they're not. And... You know, maybe that's because they are a government, uh, you know, a branch of the government. They've only recently set up BBC Worldwide, which is their independent commercial channel. If they'd done that 15 years ago when they invented streaming, I mean, the BBC. So it's about, but Netflix used to be Love Film, of course. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, used to, you used to get your, your DVDs through the post. What a fantastic <laughs> thing streaming is. And actually, the technology's improved now. You can get HD quality images on your television through, you know, through streaming. So that interruptive technology is very good. I mean, computer graphics, uh, CGI has exploded and they're able to do you know, films that they were never able to do before. The proliferation of the superhero uh, genre is extraordinary. Mm. And some of those just run into each other. You know, you, you can't really distinguish one from the other unless you get a fantastic director like, like the guy that directed Thor Ragnarok, which is just, uh, and he, he's taken the genre and he's, he's just made it, he's, he just made it his own. And it's just, you know, it's just what a fantastic, funny, wonderful film that is because he's, he's given it a different style. So, you know, in amongst the CGI and the CGI produced film, there, there, there is, again, there's there's, there's, there's there's scope for, for an individuality and, and for, for, an, for, for a director to kind of put his stamp on things. My advice to young actors is sort yourself out and don't give up, really. Mm. And I think it's more important these days. Training has more kudos these days than it ever did before. Well, no, can't say than it ever did before. Because certainly in, when I was a teenager, it was just uh, you know, it was the punk thing. The ethos was just get up and do it. 
But I think some kind of formal training goes a long way these days. People will take you seriously if you spent three years at drama at a good drama school. Uh, and when did you first get that bug to perform, to act, and and where does it come from? Well, I kind of always wanted to know. I wanted to do it, but um, yeah, I went to, like most of us. I went to a comprehensive school outside of Portsmouth, and what we had was a fantastic English department. It was my interest in English literature and English and the English lessons and the plays you read for O level, then performing plays with you know school plays. That's where it started. But before then, at junior school, I was, you know, I was always sort of in productions and things. So I mean, it's something that I got interested then, and they were wonderful. The English department at that comprehensive school, God bless them, Horndean Comprehensive School, which is now Horndean Community College. They were they were fabulous, and you know I've got them to thank. Really, it's just they sparked my interest, and I was that kid that was always pushing themselves to the front when the plays came up. You know? <laughs> and were your your parents supportive? Because neither of them had acted, had they? No, my dad. My dad always wanted to be an actor. Funny enough, he was in the navy for twenty odd years. You know, but uh, within <laughs> within the navy, he used to make his own productions. He used to write the uh, the sort of ship pantomimes. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's ace. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a theatrical bench in my family, as it were. You know, yeah. but there's, no, there's no one that precedes me. And my daughter, funny enough, has now gone to drama school, and um, she wants to be an actress, much to my chagrin. But um, who am I to say that she can't do it? You know. So yeah, there's no, nobody around. Uh, when I was 13, this happened back in prehistory when I was 13 years of age. <laughs> I went to the. Uh, I had the, the obligatory um, careers, the school careers officer came round and she made me fill in this uh, this multiple choice question. I said I wanted to be an actor. She just laughed at me. She laughed. She just laughed at me. So she made me fill in this multiple choice question. And the best thing that I would be suited to doing was to be a zookeeper. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I'll never forget it. Mrs. McBroom was her name. You know, Aww. bless her. She was only doing her best, you know. <laughs> I mean, what, what, when, I mean, at sort of 14, 15, how are you supposed to decide what you want to do as a living? Yeah, of course. You know. But you, you, you made it work. Well, I was just very lucky. I was just very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time, and I rode my luck for many years. You, know. you, you earned your, your stripes with the National Youth Theatre. Well, that's right, which, which uh, again, I mean, I got this thing from Hampshire County Council called a scholarship, and basically that meant extra drama lessons, and then we'd go and join drama sort of festivals and we'd mount our own plays and I think from the whole school because it was a large school I think there was about eight of us in that class that did that and I've recently just been in touch again with some of those people which is oh. quite interesting you know you know I mean it's a long time ago now I, I mean I, I left school in 1978 you know so that's that's how old I am and I made, I made Quadrophenia in 1978 and that was through the National Youth Theatre which was basically I was put up by the school to get into the National Youth all of us in that particular drama group were the only reason I got in is that <laughs> the only reason I'm sure is I came up for the audition. My put my dad kind of came up with me on the train because well, I was about 15, 16 years of age, you know. And um, the guy that was auditioning was a fellow called Fergus Logan, dear Fergus, who obviously had a hard night the night before and was kind of slightly <laughs> hungover. And he was actually falling asleep in the audition, so I kicked him. <laughs> I nudged him in my foot, went, oi! And he went, oh, right, you must have just put a tick next to my name, you know. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's punk rock, wasn't it? You yeah. know? So off I, off I trudged that first year. Had a great time in the school holidays, you know, just doing a couple of plays, being extras in plays and bits and pieces. And the second year audition, I got the lead in the play. 
and that's when I'll sing for Quadrophenia, and the rest they say is history, you know. You must have some awesome memories from, from making Quadrophenia. Yeah, it was great fun. It was great fun, you know. And it's funny because when we get together now, it's like no time has passed at all. It's now 40 years that we made that film. And it's still just, we just get story. Actually, we had a showing of that film at the Institut de Francais, which did a kind of an, um, a kind of intellectual approach to, yeah, just kind of an evening, an evening of quadrophenia and had the director there, Frank Rod, and a few of the crew and us. And, and we all turn up and one of the girls says, you know, you're the first people who said we've just come in and all sat around the same table. Oh. He said most because they, they they critique a lot of films there. Most casts come in and separate themselves off into one and twos, right? Because that was the feeling of the film, and that 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 has that has kind of transported all these years, or you know, or, or survived all these years. Is that feeling? Because of course you do a film like that, you don't know how it's going to be taken. Films have lives of their own, which I've learned. Is you do a film, you, you let it go. It could either flop or it could be a success. And Quadrophenia is well thought of and highly regarded, and it's, it's you know it's, it's thought of with fondness and stuff. And uh, we kind of after we made it around the sort of kind of three or four years after we realised what an extraordinary thing it was. I, I can only imagine how badly I'd have treated being 16 years old, making a movie, it would have probably gone right to my head and I'd have probably been a, a bit of a prat. You know what I mean? That's how, it's a, it's like making a movie. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I mean, the thing is, it was, it was, always, it was quite egalitarian. I mean, Phil was the lead and Phil did, Phil did well, I think, one of the best film performances ever in that film. I'm not, I'm not joking, and I really do mean that. He's yeah. just, just marvellous in that film. It's, it's wonderful. Mm. It was just because if you went in and you got too big for Gooch, you had the piss ripped out of you, basically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, but it was but it was actors, and it was the same on the bill. Nobody got too big for the boots on the bill either, because it, it, it just didn't happen. Mm. And I've, I've worked on other TV shows where that does happen, and that's a horrible atmosphere to work under. Mm. The bill was always an egalitarian thing, but the thing about the bill is... The twelve actors in those first kind of the twelve lead actors in those in those first three series all came from theatre, and I included myself in that. You know, I was seen in the theatre for the bill. Theatre is you work together with the, with a cast of people and the director and the crew to mount a production, and there's no space really in the kind of theatre that I was doing for any kind of ego. Mm. We all have our moments, we all have frothies, etc., because we all, we all care about it, we all deeply care about the work. But it was, I mean, just, you just realise that this is this feels good and well, don't spoil it, you know, just don't spoil the feeling. Mm. And also, you just, get, you just get the mickey taken out of it. You just, <laughs> you know, or you get ostracised, which is horrible, you know. Do you remember the moment where you found out you had landed the role of Jim Carver? You know, I was, I was in a play, I was committed to the play. It was a play by Tony Marchant. It was called Welcome Home. Again, it was a, a relevant bit of social theatre. It was about these five paratroop regiment soldiers come to bury their their dead comrade and um, we did it in the theatre upstairs at the Royal Court and the exec some executives and the director of the of what was to be wooden top casting directors etc came to see the play and they cast three of the five of us in either the, the pilot or the first episode of the bill so I mean I remember I remember turning up um, we, we were touring around out the back of a back of a minibus you know mm. And before we were off to, I forget where we went to, up to York, I think, maybe, after the World Court, and we all turned up, we all got asked for auditions, so we went to audition, we all, t- we all jumped in the van, we, we went, drove down to Teddington Lock, to the studios there, 
the five of us auditioned for the same part and we jumped in the van and off he went off he went and did the did the play yeah. you know and, and it was like okay well that's fine all right and the, the part quite appealed to me because he wasn't a lunatic he wasn't you know he wasn't a kidnapper or, <laughs> or a mod or a drug addict or whatever they were the kind of parts i was playing he was, he was a policeman i thought this would be very interesting to play a straight kind of copper mm. you know somebody who's, who's got a conviction about wanting to be a policeman i thought yeah fine and as far as I was concerned, it was, you know, it was a month's job. It was two weeks rehearsal. My God, in those days, you had rehearsal and two weeks filming. And so off we jump in the van and we go away and I get a phone call from the agent saying, uh, you've got an apartment. Oh, great. That's lovely. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's just finish this work first and then we'll get on with the play. Gary Olsen was in that, uh, was in the play with me and he was in Wooden Top. And so was Bob Pugh was in the play with me and he was in Wooden Top. We came from that one play they saw. Wow. The three of us. Then it all went quiet, and then six months later, they said, we're going to make a 12-part series. Now, I was committed to the play, and the play was um, was being rooted to be filmed by the BBC, and I wanted to make a film for the BBC. I didn't really want to go and do the first series of the bill. Wow, right. But my agent convinced me, and I did. I mean, I did. Quite luckily, I mean, there was, there was a strike at the BBC at the time, and Welcome Home, the movie, never got made because uh, the strike action stopped that. So it was, again, I was very lucky. It was a lucky choice. I mean, there's no sort of uh, real conviction or, or thought behind it. I was just very lucky that I'd, I'd gone for the job that, that, that got made. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's, that's how this business is. You, you, you know, one conversation, one meeting, one phone call, one, one performance in the theatre, somebody sees you, and away you go. Many, many people, hundreds, thousands, probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of actors, never get the opportunities that I've had. And I feel very grateful for that, for that. Now, the interesting thing about Jim Carver, of course, is then you play a character for that amount of time. But we never knew it was going to be that amount of time because we did the first series of the bill and that was it. You know, off you go. And I think I did, you know, I went, went back to theatre again and did some theatre and bits and pieces. And, uh, and six months later, we decided to make a second series after a year gap. So we made a second series of the bill. Then there was a two-year gap and they made the third series of, of uh, 12 episodes. And then there's, I think there was another six or seven weeks off, and then they started half-hour episodes to change the format. Um, which was probably around, let me see, the first one was 83, pilot 84 was the first series. I think 85, 86, probably about 88, 1988, That's... 1989. You probably know what it is. Yeah, 88 is when they uh, started transmitting the half-hour episodes. They'd moved you to CID in, in Series 3. Yeah. Something I've always admired about you is your body language. Carver doesn't have to be saying anything, and you know exactly, you know whether he's had a, a, a really bad night's sleep or he's got too much paperwork. <laughs> he probably has had a bad night. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. That's a lovely compliment because, um, you know, I, I try... You, you, you're in a show that long. You want to make it interesting for yourself. You want to you want to keep on top of it. You know, you, you, you try your best. Is uh, I can't say lots of actors, but some actors um, just sleepwalk through things. You know, it's just, you know, but then there was there was a conviction, there was a feeling around at the time is that you give 100 percent to it. Everybody, everyone on that show gave 100 percent to it. Everyone did the best they could at the time under the you know under the circumstances because that that's what makes the work good, and that's about being the conviction of, of being with a good a good cast a good troupe of actors and mm. um, that that's about being you know having an, a, 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 an egalitarianism about it and, and just 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 getting on and doing the job really i mean that that feeling on the bill it was probably unique you know i've worked on other tv productions and yeah the great cast and things but 
I think because of my longevity on the building, it was special. And, and, that, and, that, and that pertained right through the entire kind of, well, the 21 years that I was there. There was always, there was always time for a laugh. There was always, you know, there was always time for, for, for kind of being serious as well, of course, and, um, and doing the work. And get, but the work came first, and, and the conviction to that work pervaded through the cast. And I think that, that kind of showed until, until the show got really silly and went, 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 went into soap. Yeah. You know, it was, um, it was that, yeah, that was the kind of feeling. That was the, that was the feeling was, that was there. It was, it was an extraordinary thing to work on. I mean, the only reason I went into CID, and I can tell this story, is one of, one of CID had got, in real life, had got nicked for drunk driving. They need somebody who could drive a car. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I used to go out with Rick Rickaby, who was the action vehicles, who was the police vehicle man, driving around Abbrook Grove. He was giving me driving lessons, you know. So then I went and got my license. It's the only reason I got a driving license is because of certain actor got, got a conviction. Wow. <laughs> I did a shot. I did a shot once. It just passed. I didn't even pass my test. It was called Blind Alley's Clogged Roads. I remember it distinctly because they had to have. So I was on a provisional license. They had to have somebody with a full license in the car with me. So they put the first, the poor old runner who had a license, they put her in the footwell of the car. <laughs> Out of shot when I was driving, hacking this car around the streets of Labrador Grove just to make it legal. That was wow. the kind of show the film was. You know? <laughs> and in that episode, you have a terrific chase sequence through the underground. You grab this mugger yeah. and, and it's all in one wonderful take. It must have been so yeah. exciting. Yeah, especially when you didn't have a full license. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't happen these days, of course. Health and safety. Yeah, you know. yeah. The, the, I mean, the bill is littered with those stories. I laughed out loud reading, I think it was the bill annual of 2000, where you, you talked about doing an episode on location and you're waiting for some drugs to be flushed down the loo. Oh, that one. I remember that distinctly. It was horrible. <laughs> it was in Nottingham, it was in Labrook Grove. And there I am with the hands, you know, down, open the manhole cover, and I'm sort of 12 foot down with the hands. And then somebody gone to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got a handful of you know what. <laughs> the glamorous showbiz. Yeah. What I love about you, I mean, it, it's lovely little moments, and you can give a line so much. It's hard for me to describe it, but I'll do an example. There's an episode in series four. It's called Homes and Gardens. And there's an old couple who've had their garden vandalised. Right. And Carver says, well, how would it be if I came down and looked at the garden? And the old boy says, what for? And you just say, well, sir, I am a detective. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's for this right. wonderful way that you have of, of spelling out the preposterous uh, and it harks back to my favourite line of yours in Quadrophenia. You're having sex, and Phil Daniels says, "What are you doing, Dave?" And you say, "What does it look like?" Yeah. <laughs> Is that something within your own sense of humour that you like to to bring out? Quadrophenia was an extraordinary thing because most of it was improvised. <laughs> um, yeah, you know. So I mean, we knew what we, we knew what we had to do in the scene, and we worked on it, and we kind of improvised a lot of those. So, um, kind of lines but the bill had room for, for scope for that as well especially in the early days before we became so sort of busy on the bill a lot of the first at least the first couple of series a lot of that was improvised or you certainly had an input i mean you had a great input on the bill anyway as a as one of the kind of main cast 
yeah, you could uh, you could change lines and and scenes. You 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 come in for a day's work and just, you kind of get the first scene of the day out. And you go well, actually, you look at the scene and you go actually. Uh, physically, I can't be here. That's what I have to teleport through a wall. <laughs> so we have to we have to fix this line here. So uh, and then you go. Well, I wouldn't say that this way. I'd say it this way. Maybe I would say this here. Hmm. So we'd have a little we'd have a little discussion about it. Those those line changes would be taken to the producer. This is, you know, as it happens to the producer, and then the script department who would okay the changes. It happens in minutes. You know. Yeah. And then we would come back and we would perform the scene that we had just worked on yeah. and, and sort of not improved it, but, but put it into maybe a vernacular or, or maybe to make it clearer. That was the input as an actor on the bill. That, that was the kind of the freedom that you had. I've worked on other shows where the lines are set and you have to say those lines because they've done a camera script and it's five cameras and they've already worked out where, they, where they're going to film that line. On the bill, of course, it was single camera, so there was, there was a lot more flexibility there. And I just worked on a film where I wasn't allowed to put any of that in because because the producer didn't want um, want him to to have these funny lines. Um, I was playing playing a sort of uh, playing a gangster, and I don't know if it's going to work or not because I wasn't allowed to put any humour into it, mm. which I found frustrating. But I thought, fine, if that's something, all right. Then you go, okay, okay. Um, so I managed to do a couple of takes with a few you know funny lines and whatever, or just. You know, crack sparkling one-liners. But if that's what she wants, then that's what she's going to get. And, I'm, I, and I, I know that if I argue this point, I'm just going to go argue it until I'm blue in the face, which was a little bit disappointing, you know, because what you want to do, you give any actor their salt, they want to make the lines themselves, but they must be kept in check. You've got to, you've got to bounce it off your, your director or your producer. And that's no, she said, this is what we want. This is this is how we've written the part. This is how it's going to be done. And all I can say is, well, okay, fine. All right, I'll do it your way. And um, and try and find a way through that that way, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the bill, there was a lot more latitude. There was a lot more latitude, a lot more freedom to, to, to kind of work on stuff. And, and a lot of the human ability comes from the individual actors um, with their input, basically. So there was a, certainly was an input, especially with with the older characters. And what we used to say is that, you know, people like myself and Trudy and Eric Richard and Chris Addison as Burnside, we are the custodians of our, of our characters. We knew our characters more than, than a, a new director, for example. Mm. And not that, not that there'd be any kind of sort of uh, real discussions or heated debates or whatever, but you'd just say, well, maybe I wouldn't say that here. You know, I'd say it like this and you go, yeah, well, that's fine. Well done. Thank you. Yeah. So there was, there was a trust built up between, between the directors coming in and the actors that imbued the characters, you know, because we, we knew how the characters were informed. We knew, we knew them inside out. And I think it's like that on any of the large shows. There's parts of you which, which we seep into the character anyway, you know, so, and, uh, and that, that is particularly prevalent on something like the soaps because of their, the expedience that they're made is that um, you've probably not got time, not got time for big acting, so it becomes about behaviour. Mm. One of my favourite episodes uh, of all time, it, it, it's called Friends and Neighbours by Christopher Russell and uh, Carver has moved into the section house and he realises he's going to be living opposite Reg Hollis. Right. And so he goes to goes out and drowns his sorrows with, uh, with Ted Roach and you and Tony Scannell, between you, deliver one of the best comedic examples of drunk acting I've ever seen. Perfect. <laughs> Yeah, it's a moment where he 
he cannot pronounce the word statistics. It's beautifully <laughs> he adds in so many statistics and uh, and brilliant finger wagging. And every time we cut back to you, you're both getting more and worse for wear. And, and then it's Carver's first night in the section house and he's bringing Ted back with him, who then falls asleep on his bed. But then first thing in the morning, Tony Scandal's like waking up bright as a button. Jim, Jim, come on, we got to go. He's got a hunch and, you, and you're going out at like half five in the morning. Like, you know, those right. early fantastic characters who just loved the job, you know, yeah. it was about nicking villains and wonderful comedy that you you share so many lovely scenes with Kevin Lloyd. Oh, bless him. Yeah, lovely. Oh, Kevin was a joy to work with, you know. He was he was a naughty man. He 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 was a he was a he was a bugger. He was um because he would deliver his line and he would twinkle, his eyes would twinkle and he would give you this little look, which would make which would make you talk, which would make you make you laugh. But he was completely deadpan. He was completely <laughs> dead faced. You know, he was he was a bugger. He was a bugger. He was really difficult. He was fun. He was such fun. Bless him. Oh yeah, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful scene in that. In a story called Hammer to Fall by Russell Lewis, and you, you, uh, Carver and Tosh are playing I Spy where you're on an obo. And I Spy with my little eyes, something beginning with S, and uh, you say sausages. And like, sausages, where? I don't know. <laughs> and then it cuts back to you, and, and Tosh says, sofa beds. You say, sofa beds, where? Yeah, in the warehouse over there. I can't see inside, can I? How do I know if it's sofa beds? Well, use your imagination. You know, it's just, it's gold dust. Did you guys, like, while you were waiting around to film, uh, I don't know if there was much waiting around because it sounds like the bill was so fast-paced, but what did you guys get up to in between takes? You know, how how did you guys pass the time together? Oh, we just had a laugh, really. What a legend. More gold dust to come in part two. Stay tuned.